Well, good morning. Today I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to begin studying uh, the, the book of Mark. And um, what I love about Mark is that he is the first writer to actually write the story of Jesus down. He wrote the book um, probably between 40 and 50 years after the ascension of Jesus. And, you know, that seems like a long time in our day because anything happens around us now, people immediately begin writing books. But, um, you know, that was pretty significant. Why did it take him a while and why did he decide to do that? Well, first of all, um, up until this point, anybody who was talking about Jesus couldn't really get too far out of hand because eyewitnesses were there. They watched the story of Jesus unfold. And so, uh, but, but by the time you get to when Mark starts to write, there are fewer and fewer witnesses to collaborate or disagree with whatever somebody is saying. So Mark, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, decides to write down the story of Jesus. I mean, aren't you grateful? You know, when my dad died last December, and one thing I have discovered is that now when I look through pictures or try to remember stories that he would tell me, and I, I, wanna, I wonder what, and then it dawns on me, wait a second, I, he's not around to, to fill in the blanks or remind me of who that was or what was going on. So vital that we have a written record, and so God very graciously gives us the Gospels. Mark is one of four. And it begins sort of with the conclusion. In Mark chapter 1, it says this. This is what Mark says. I'm, I'm getting ready to tell you something. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I've got good news for you. God has come in the person of Jesus. Yes, the Jesus that some of us knew and walked with, he was in fact the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, the one who would come and save us, the king who would put all things in order. Let me just tell you who he was. He was the Christ, Jesus Christ, and he was the Son of God. Now, Mark actually did know Jesus. He wasn't one of the 12, but he was a protege of Peter, who was one of the disciples. And Mark shows up in the story of Jesus as a very young man. We have a passing reference in Mark 14, 51 to 52, and it talks about in the Garden of Gethsemane, a young man was following Jesus, and they came to arrest him in the intensity of that moment. And the soldiers grabbed a hold of this young man, and he knew something was coming down that wasn't good, and so he was trying to get away. He couldn't get away any other way than he slipped out of his clothes and ran down the street, left the clothes in their hand. Scholars say that this was Mark himself. He's the only one who writes about this. But Mark tells us who Jesus was and what he had done. It's interesting, you don't go to the book of Mark if you're trying to plan a Christmas service because there's nothing there. He begins with Jesus as an adult. Matthew, however, introduces the king, the son of David, and he lists the entire genealogy. Luke, his, he's highlighting the fact that Jesus is fully man. He comes all the way down the lineage of Adam all the way to that time. 
John, John is the most theological of all. He just begins, in the beginning was God, and Jesus was the Son of God. But, but Mark doesn't even give him much of an introduction. And you know why? It's because the focus of Mark's gospel is Jesus the servant. And nobody cares about the background of a servant. One of the key verses in Mark is this. For Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You know, it's funny, growing up uh, as a kid, it, you, you love to be the boss. Um, you love to be in charge. You like for people to serve you, right? And then Jesus comes and he says, no, actually, the greatest of all is the servant of all. And then he washes his disciples' feet. Here we have the God who created all of us in all things and sustains us year after year, and he comes, and his primary role is to be a servant. You know that Jesus, he's still alive, and he's ready to serve you today. He will never leave you or forsake you. He invites you to call upon him in your time of trouble and ask for the help that only he can give. Why? Because he came to serve. He's still serving. You don't have to do everything by yourself. And so Mark introduces us to Jesus with an opening statement that identifies him clearly as Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's actually the Savior that we all need. It's the story of God who came to save us. Now, the truth about human being is that, beings is that we don't want a savior. We want to be independent, on our own, doing our own thing. We don't, we don't want to have someone there to act like we, we're not strong enough. I mean, especially in American culture. I mean, we're all about individuals. I, you know, I, I, I succeeded on my own. Um, we have all kinds of sayings that, that proclaim that the goal is to be independent and self-sufficient and the pro there's some great things about that. But one of the problems is sometimes we forget we actually need a savior. I think many people never come to Christ because they never admit that they need to be saved. A new movie came out this summer. It's called 13 Souls, and it's uh, produced by Ron Howard, and it tells the story of a soccer team in Thailand, okay, 12 young soccer players and their coach, who after practice one day, they decided to go and discover this cave. It was a well-known uh, tourist kind of place. Uh, it, it is a cave that goes into the mountain. And these guys, they started crawling through this mountain, I mean, it, if you are claustrophobic, you will hate the movie, okay? They get into the cave, they go up and down and crawl all around, I mean, some sm small areas they had to crawl through, big spiky uh, formations of rocks they'd have to dodge. Uh, they get into the mountain this day and it starts to rain. And it, it was the monsoon rains. And within minutes, 
the water comes into the cave through the mountain and the cave system filled up with water. And now you have these 13 individuals who are, I think they're maybe a couple kilometers into the cave system. They're buried beneath the ground. And then they realize as the water comes up, just like in a flash, they don't have a way to get out. They can't get out. So they crawl to the top of this rock ledge that they found, and they're all huddled together on this ledge as they watch the water rising. And they wonder, are we going to survive? Will we just all climb up here, and then this cave will fill up, and we're going to all drown together? And they do not drown immediately. In fact, they, they get up there, and they stay, and they wait. And it is... Um, it, it is nine days that they wait hoping someone come, will come and help. Can you imagine nine days in the dark? They use up all their food. They've got nothing left. They have no capacity to save themselves. They can't communicate to anyone. I wonder if they thought, did, does anybody know we're missing? Well, the fact is they did know that they were missing and a worldwide effort to rescue this, this group was uh, under, underway. People were flying in from all over the world who are expert cave divers and that's what the story is all about. The Thailand government, military, their Navy SEALs were all assembled. Engineers that knew how to pump water out of a cave were brought and it's a magnificent story of a worldwide effort to try to save these kids. I just can't imagine the feeling of feeling like I'm helpless, I might be dying, and you wait for day one, day two, day three, all the way to nine days. Finally, on the ninth day, the divers finally had penetrated the cave far enough. They thought they were looking for bodies. They pop up out of the water and they shine a light and they see, we got a picture of this. It's not a clear picture because that's the original picture. And they discover much to their surprise that all 13 of them were still alive. And that began an incredible effort to get them out. Not all of them could swim. It required the few elite expert cave divers to get to where they were. There was no way those young boys, some of whom couldn't even swim, could be trained at their weakened state to be able to dive with air tanks and get them out. It couldn't happen. So what do they do? They devised this incredible plan where they would go in and they would take the boys in, in between two other divers, one diver holding his air tank. They put the mask on them and they just needed to, to just be pulled. And it was, when it was all said and done, all of them made it out alive. Have you ever felt a moment of desperation have you ever felt like you were in such trouble you had no idea what to do? I mean, have you ever tried to cover up what concerns you on the inside by, you know, 
listening to music all the time or watching movies or par- partying with friends or occupy yourself with the endless internet. I mean, that, that's what we do. We are expert at shoving to the back of our minds the things that trouble us the most. And the truth is, we were never designed to live life without the help of God. We, we belong to him. We owe him. And he has come to save us. And that is what Mark declares. Jesus has come to save. And then he introduces us to another character in the story. He talks about John. John um, is introduced this way. As it is written in the prophets, behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So he's linking all the way back to prophets who had written hundreds and even thousands of years before and, and, and decide, said, I want you to know that before the Messiah comes, God will send a special envoy to introduce him and prepare the way. Now, that's not unlike what happens in our day. You know, if the president of the United States goes somewhere, he doesn't just show up unannounced. There's a lot of preparation. And someone comes in before the president and would say, ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States of America. And then the signal is for everyone to stand. And we hear the great band play, Hail to the Chief. And you know the president has arrived. When Jesus came, the Son of God, God says, I'm actually going to send an introducer. So when this guy shows up on the stage, get ready because he's coming. In verse 4, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea, those from Jerusalem, went out to him and were baptized by him in the river, Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. He preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I am, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It is so interesting how he includes some of these very important details about John the Baptist. I mean, he's kind of an odd guy. He even tells you what he's wearing. He's wearing a coat made of camel's hair. He didn't shop at Macy's. You know what? He was wearing this rugged camel hair coat with the leather around him, uh, a leather belt around him, and he even describes his diet. He's not going to take you to hula hands. He eats locusts and honey. Not fine clothing and not fine clothes. And he doesn't he doesn't mince words when he preaches. He he proclaims that there needs to be a repentance of sin. You got to know you need help. You got to know that you need to be forgiven. Now, John was talking to a Jewish audience, and it's not by accident that John was wearing uh, camel's hair coat with a leather belt and because they immediately would have seen the visual and remembered their history because Elijah in 2 Kings 1.8 is described as wearing a, a garment of hair cloth with a girdle of leather around his loins. So he, he is looking like Elijah. 
Um, the book of Malachi actually foretold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day that the Lord comes. He'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land. So this is an intricate, well-established plan. This coming of Jesus didn't just happen. It was on schedule and exactly as it was predicted. And uh, Malachi says, the prophet that will precede Jesus is going to remind you a lot of Elijah, and so he comes. An elaborate plan of rescue. And that's what John's going to tell us about. Second, uh, third thing, his message is about our need to repent and our need to be forgiven of our sins. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance and remission of sins. So he's telling everybody, listen, he's coming. And when God comes, you gotta be ready because it's very easy for you to overlook him so many people did not recognize when Jesus came. And John calls people out into the wilderness and tells them they need to admit that they need the intervention of God himself and to publicly proclaim, I need to be forgiven of my sin. And John says, and I want you to be baptized and he would take them in the water, just like what we did, put them under the water and bring them back up. You know what? That is a little bit of an inconvenient thing to do. Do you know what I'm saying? I've talked to people before, and they say, well, Pastor, I want to be baptized, but man, if I get my hair wet, I'm not going to look good. No, you're not going to look good. I mean, it's kind of embarrassing to walk in front of the church wet. Yes, it is. Amazingly, John had a hard message and he brought people to a hard place, the wilderness. Now, if you were promoting an event, you probably would promote that event and put it in one of the local uh, auditoriums in the city so it's easy for me to get there. A place with lots of parking and snacks and you know what I mean? But John's not, he's not giving anybody a pass. Nope, you're serious about this? I'm out here in the wilderness and I am proclaiming something is about to happen and I am calling you to a baptism of repentance of sin. You mean I'm gonna have to admit that I'm not good, that I need forgiveness, that I need God to change me? That's exactly what he does. You know, from the beginning of the story of the Bible, the one thing we learn about human beings is that um, when we sin, our natural response is not to repent. When Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, and you can imagine they, they had a beautiful setting, all the food they could ever want. Uh, God would come and walk with them in the cool of the night and they communed with God in a way that you and I can only imagine. Uh, but then one day the serpent came and the certain dece serpent deceived Eve, and then she ate and gave the fruit to Adam, and immediately after that happened, they, they sensed something was wrong, and they felt their nakedness, and they, 
their response was to run and hide and to cover because that's our natural response to our sin. We immediately find ways to cover our sin, to, to make sure nobody sees it. Um, I mean, Adam begins to blame his wife, and his wife blames the serpent. And the serpent, well, he knew. Our natural tendency is to run and hide. So this calling to repentance, is it hard for you to repent? I'm going to answer that question for you. Yes, it is. It's hard for you. Why? Because you're a human being. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives to lead us to the place where we would consider repenting. We actually respond to the wooing and the calling of God because God knows that he's got something on the other side of our sin. It is, it is full of joy and hope and freedom. David is a man who is described after being after God's own heart. And then he does the unthinkable. It's one of the most awful stories in the Bible. David, this great man, sees Bathsheba. He knows she's married. He takes her. He sleeps with her. She, she becomes pregnant. And now he's going to be uncovered. What does he do? He calls for her husband, brings her husband back, tries to send him home. Her husband was such a, a soldier of honor, he refused to go and eat a fine meal and spend the night with his wife while his brother soldiers were still out in the field. And David tries and tries and tries. But Uriah's integrity was so high, he never gave in. And then he went back to the battlefield, and David knows he's in big trouble. So he sends in his hand the instruction to his commander I want you to put him at the front of the battle and when, the, when it gets to be the worst I want you to have the men around him retreat and let him die and David murders him and then he comes home I mean he, he's like well okay that worked he brings Bathsheba into his house and makes him her wife does David immediately run and find the prophet and say I have sinned Forgive me? No. Because we don't repent well. The, the prophet ultimately comes to him, tells him the story about a man who stole the one single sheep of his poor neighbor. And David is so angry that this rich man would steal the one and only sheep of his poor neighbor. And David erupts in anger thinking, thinking he's been asked to judge this man and says that man should die. And then the prophet, so, man, it was so well played. He says, David, you are the man. It was only because God chased David down and confronted him with his sin that David found his way to repent. You know, it takes nine months to have a baby. Do you know that? And this is a good time for me to just tell you, I wasn't here last week, but last week it was announced that we're going to have another grandbaby. Yeah. And be, because we know the stats, it takes nine months. The doctor says this baby's coming in March, and we're so excited. For nine months, David does not repent does not seek God, does not admit his sin until the prophet comes and confronts him. 
Now, you read Psalm 32. This is after David has processed this whole event. And he has this to say about the internal things that were going on inside of him. Psalm 32, 1 to 4, David says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. And then he goes on and he says, but this is what I did. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groanings all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I mean, he, he describes what was going on in his life. I mean, it looked like everything was okay. He was the king. He lived in a palace. He lived a life of privilege and honor. And still, no matter what was going on outside, inside, he admits in Psalm 32, I was a mess. There was no joy, no zest for life, no peace. I was faking it all the time. Uh, sin destroys the human heart. And David describes that's exactly what was going on with him. You know, our culture today wants us to believe that there is really not a thing called sin, that everything's okay, don't worry about it, just go on and enjoy and do whatever you want. And yet the reality is that sin inside of us breaks down our relationships, it begins to hurt us, I mean, it, 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 it dis- destroys us, it defines us mentally, spiritually, emotionally. Uh, sin is a problem. Finally, After this year, he is confronted by Nathan the prophet. And he acknowledges his sin. Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. This is the same message of John the Baptist. People, all of you, Your problem is sin is eating you alive. Running and hiding and covering doesn't work. But there is a path forward. It is the path of a gracious God who has come to save. And if you will repent of your sin, he will forgive and cleanse and give you a new life, a new start. Psalm 103, the Lord is, verse eight to 14, the Lord is merciful and gracious, that's who he is. Slow to anger and abounding in mercy, he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. You know what, I think sometimes we're afraid of God because we forget that God is predisposed and will actually, he will forgive and renew and rescue and heal those who come and confess and ask for help. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. I want to tell you today, it doesn't matter what's going on in your life, no matter what you've done, Why we love Jesus so much is because 
he demonstrates the heart of God to come and forgive, to rescue, and to renew those who are broken. But he's waiting for us to admit it. He's waiting for us to say, God, I need help. Do you know, I would venture to say that every single one of us in this room need the help of God in some area of our lives. And this Jesus, by his mere presence on planet Earth, says, I've come to serve you. I will help you. What are you carrying today? Where does the angst of your soul come from? Did you know that God stands ready today to help, to intervene, to change you, to rescue you, to heal you, to restore relationships that are broken, to help you choose to do the right thing? Because he is our savior. The biggest problem is sometimes we, we, we won't admit it. I want to show you the story of a couple of uh, people, father and son, who found themselves in desperate situations and then they cried out for help. Watch the story. There was times I was discouraged, but I continued to pray. I continued to plead before God, sometimes with tears, sometimes with, with no words at all, just save my dad. God, he can literally change the hardest of hearts. But I'm just so thankful for what God did. Christopher was a, a tough kid, and I uh, was a stubborn father. Uh, our relationship was not good. We just both had a lot of anger and a lot of bitterness and a lot of hatred. He went out to the West Coast. Things didn't work the way he thought. And the realization of what was happening confronted him and hit him head on. I was determined like nothing's going to stop me now from taking my life. I got into the elevator and as I entered, a woman entered with me. She, she looked at me and she said, if you were to die today, are you 100% sure you're going to heaven? And I said, no, I'm not. But that's the question I've been asking myself. And I look up at her, and this woman I've never met before in my life, and she's like, God is calling me to you right now. And he doesn't want you to do what you're about to do. You want to take your life, don't you? And I was like, just shocked. Like, how do you know that? <laughs> she said, I don't, but God does, and he loves you. And he sent me here to tell you what he did for you upon that cross. And that's when it clicked in my head. I was like, God, I'm sorry for the way I've treated my wife. I'm sorry for stealing things. And I just was pouring out my heart. I heard, just with the clearest voice ever, say to me, Chris, Chris, ladies at my feet, never think of these again. You are forgiven. And since that moment, I mean, he, he literally changed everything around in my life. And the days following and the months following, I saw his progression. I saw how he changed. I saw how his life changed. Uh, I started to pray for my dad right away. God, if you can change 
his heart, my whole family will come to Christ. <laughs> I was getting baptized, so I invited my dad, I invited my mom. My dad was sitting there uh, mocking it, <laughs> making fun of it. I wasn't even upset. I was just like, God, he just doesn't know, you know, help him understand. It wasn't something that he just started praying and all of a sudden it, it came and it hit me. It was a long, it was a progression because he had to work at it. I needed work. And then I kind of grew discouraged because, you know, years had passed and it was still the same and it seemed like it was getting worse. So I said, God, he's in your hands and whatever it is, you, you take control. And that's when everything kind of just flipped. And now they're talking about moving to North Carolina. And I just felt something on my spirit, like, it's okay. And Sonia found Renovation Church and told me about it. My first day walking in the church, it was like, this is what I've looked for my whole life. And here it is. He said, in that moment, everything that you had said, everything that other people had said, it just all kind of made sense. It just started to grow. It was, it was a growing change and and each each week it grew stronger and stronger and stronger when he realized his needs for him he cried out to him from his heart and said save him god save him sonia and i decided that we wanted to be baptized in the ocean it was just the greatest day of my life <laughs> you know the man that was mocking me in my own baptism is now getting baptized it was just <laughs> an incredible thing just his love for god is so real just the evidence of change I accepted Jesus Christ. And now my mission is to share that with other people. And that's what being a Christian is all about. And that's what the gift I've been given through my son, it's all about. God is so faithful. And he hears our prayers. He hears every single one of them. And he can literally change the hardest of hearts. Just keep praying. Keep seeking God. He'll work out the details. It's a real thing today, happened again. Some people who decided to put their faith and trust in Jesus, they made it public in baptism. And um, I don't know what's going on in your life today, but I do know that there's a savior who will help you if you'll ask him. I'm gonna ask you if you'll stand and I'm gonna call you to respond, but Bow your heads and, and, and I want you to just take a moment and ask, ask God, what, what is that thing going on in my life that I need to address? The thing that makes me sad or scared or anxious or angry or confused. What is it? I mean, just living life requires more help than, than we have. We need a God strong and powerful who will come alongside of us and show us the way and help us know what to do. So I just want you to, to identify that and then we're in church. Let's make good use of this time right there in your seat. Say, God, I need your help. I need your help. Maybe you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior and you haven't begun that relationship yet. How about today? Why don't you just cry out to God and ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin and welcome him into your life to be your Lord and your Savior?
just cry out to him. I'm going to pray. We're going to worship together, and I'm going to be down front as well as others. If uh, we could pray for you, um, I invite you to come. Um, dear God in heaven, thank you for being a God who is uh, a God who has come to save us, a God who has come to help us. I thank you that you don't leave us in our sin because it destroys us. Even if we say we don't believe it, it does destroy us. It steals our peace, our well-being. It fills us with anxiety and struggle and angst. And so, Lord, I thank you that you have come to save us. Now I pray that you would do a work in each one of our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.